0: Message in our series that we started a few weeks ago called Followship. And this is a series that's designed specifically to look at and to answer the question: what does it really mean to follow Jesus, to be one of his disciples? And it's critical that we answer this question because the final marching orders of Jesus to his church is found in Matthew 28, where he says, Go. And make disciples of all nations. Make people who act like me, talk like me, love like me, serve like me, give like me. That's the final instructions that Jesus gave to his church. And let me just say this. I don't say this very often, okay? But if you were not here last Sunday on September 15th, please go back And in your car or at home or wherever you can, listen to last Sunday's message because it's foundational to what we mean when we talk about being followers of Christ as opposed to just being Christians. And I believe that this is one of the most important sermons series that I've ever given. Here's why because the great Failing of so many churches in our nation is that they do not have a discipleship strategy. They've got a lot of programs, but they don't have a clear path, a clear process that communicates this is how you reach the goal of looking more and more like Jesus. And I told you in week one of this series that if you come to a church and become a member of that church, you have a right to have high expectations of what that church is about. Likewise, if you identify with a church, the church leadership has the right to have high expectations of what they can expect of you to help that church get to where they are going. So over the coming months, as we rebrand ourselves, you'll see it in our literature, you'll see it in our signage throughout the church, So that when people come into Bachelor Creek, they'll know this is what Bachelor Creek is about. This is what Bachelor Creek values. And this is what Bachelor Creek expects of me if I'm going to be a part of this body of believers. So here's the question. What does the life of someone look like who is following Jesus well? And if you remember right, last week I laid out for you what the rest of this series was going to be, topic by topic. Six core commitments, six core habits that are evident in the life of somebody who is dedicated to being a follower of Jesus. And number one on that list was this, disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, worship regularly. Or we could say it like this. We could say, faithful followers worship faithfully. All right? Now, some of you in here today, maybe you can identify with the little boy who asked his dad one day. He said, Dad, what's the highest number you've ever counted to? And the dad said, I don't know. What's the highest number you've ever counted to? The boy said, 5,287. The dad said, well, why did you stop there? Why didn't you keep going on? The boy said, because church was over. (laughs) Have you ever found yourself there? That in worship or in an environment like this, you start to engage in really mundane, mind-numbing exercises like counting the lights or the patterns in the carpet or the ceiling tiles just to make time go by faster? Any of you ever done that before? Any of you done it in the last six months? Everybody's like, (laughs) preacher wrath, right? Come at you. But really, I, I share that with you because, you know, a lot of times when people are here, they're not really here mentally, are they? They come, and their first objective is, how fast can we get out? And here's what we're learning. We've got lots of interesting data that's coming up among church researchers, and they're telling us something that people who consider themselves regular or active church members are actually going to church less often. There is an attendance decline in the American church, but it's not a matter of fewer people going to church. It's more that people are going to church fewer times a month. So if you have a church that has 100 members, and people go three out of four Sundays, the average attendance at that church will be what? 75. You're not passing math today, are you? <laughs> three out of four is 75, okay? Or if that same church has 100 members and people go two out of four times, you can redeem yourself. The average membership, the average attendance is what? Half. 50. Half. Thank you so much, okay? So, By the way, statistics are telling us something. They're telling us that the average church attender in the United States, someone who considers themselves a regular church attender, guess how many times regular means to them just by their actions? 1.7 times a month. They're at church about 20 out of 52 Sundays, or we could say they're there about 39% of the time. Now, where do we stand as Bachelor Creek? Here's some information for you. On an average Sunday, a given Sunday, we run anywhere from 700 to 800 people. Sometimes above the 800, we get closer to 850, but we're somewhere in that fluctuation of 700 to 850 people. So you might think, well, we must be a church of about 700 to 850 people, right? Wrong. Wrong. I asked Ryan Kime just this last week, I said, Ryan, all those snapshot cards you've been taking, and all the communication cards we have been filling out, because we've got a new church database software, I'm trying to get as much accurate data as we can. I said, how many people have we identified, kids, adults, everybody, that would identify Bachelor Creek as their spiritual home? He said about 1,400. The thing is, we just can't get everybody here on the same day, can we? So that tells us that on any given Sunday, about half. Of our church family isn't here, which corresponds really with what the current statistics tell us about 1.7, close to two times a month. And here's what the data is also telling us there's so many factors contributing to this that we really didn't have to deal with years ago. One is our affluence as a nation. We've been very blessed, so we've got more money to travel now. So we can spend that three-day weekend with the kids more often than what we used to. Or we can now buy lake houses. And if we can't buy the lake house and be there for the weekend, we buy the boat for the lake and we'll be out on the lake. Another contributing factor, and this one is almost impossible to underestimate how this has changed the game, is kids' sports. Kids' sports. I don't know how many of you are like me, but when I was growing up, if I would drive by the local baseball field or sports complex, there was nobody there on a Sunday. Anybody else? It was kind of sacred day, respected time. But it seems like anymore, Sundays are a fair game for sports to happen just like any other time. A few weeks ago, Seth's soccer team had a one o'clock game in Warsaw on a Sunday. And we just told the coach, he'll get there when he gets there. But my fear is that with a lot of families, when it comes between church and team, teams come first. So we've got our affluence, we've got kids' sports programs that are just nonstop all the time. You notice we have the introduction of that we didn't really have 20 years ago? Online church services. I remember 20 years ago hearing George Barna at a conference I was at, saying that in about 20 years, in about 2020, about half of the American population would be getting their spiritual food online. And I thought, no way, nothing's ever going to replace being present, being with other believers. But I'll tell you what, I think he was onto something. Now, a lot of churches, they'll record their, their services or they'll have a live stream going for the sake of their members who are out of town so they can watch while they're away, or people who are sick that morning so they can feel apart, or shut-ins, people who are elderly and can't get out, they want them to be blessed by the service. So very, very good intentions. But what we're finding out is that more and more families are waking up on a, on a Sunday who have access to this, and they say, you know what, it looks like it's going to be raining outside today, so let's just stay in our pajamas and let's do church at home. And here's what I know. Some of you might be tempted to push back this morning and say, Solomon, you can't tell me that it requires a special building for me to come to to worship God. And I wholeheartedly agree. There's nobody who's a better advocate or a number one fan of this idea that worship is with my lifestyle. That I should worship God as wholeheartedly outside of this building as I do in this building. It doesn't take a building to worship God. But here's what I want you to read. In Psalm 34, verse 1, he says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. So he's just advocating that worship is a lifestyle. I should be worshiping God all the time, no matter where I'm at. But here's the deal, folks. Every single person who I know who lives like that, that their life is a form of worship to God. Every single person I know like that is always, always eager for the chance to get together with the collective body of Christ and worship God. I know that. In fact, here's what the psalmist says just a few verses later after he says that. He says, glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name, what? What? together yeah so don't try to convince me that you can love god but you don't need to be in the presence of his people there's no place in scripture for that kind of mindset and when god teaches through scripture about worship he teaches worship not necessarily as an option but as an ought listen to what we read in psalm 122 I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, for this reason, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. So when God gave Israel the statute to worship, it wasn't for God's sake. God doesn't need our worship. He's he's no more complete. He's no more whole. He's no more God because he receives our worship. God gave the statute for worship not because he needs it, but because, guess what? We need it. Because it's good for us to come together in this kind of environment and corporately lift up the name of our God. Here's what it does. When I gather with the saints of God and and we experience worship, and I'm not just talking about the singing. I'm talking about when we hear the word of God proclaimed, when we partake of the elements of communion, remembering what Jesus did. When we see a baptism, when we see God change a life right before our eyes. You know what that does? that helps you and it helps me keep my heart and my mind centered on ultimate reality and i think that's why jesus made worship an ultimate priority that we go to worship because our lord went to worship with others we read about this in luke chapter 4 it says here he meaning jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Listen to this. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, everybody say this with me, as was his custom. So if you want to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, the sermon could be over for you right now. Because you've just seen the model of your Lord, and you're like, if that's what he did, that's what I'm doing. If you're a committed follower of Christ, I need say nothing more when it comes to corporate worship. It was the habit, it was the commitment, it was the discipline of Jesus, the one we call Christ, Savior, Lord, to worship regularly with other followers of God. And Here's the question. Why did Jesus do this? I mean, think about it, really. We're talking about... Jesus. Was it because when he went to synagogue, he heard worship like he had never heard before in heaven? Did he go because the fellowship at the local synagogue was better than the fellowship that he'd experienced between Father and Holy Spirit in the Trinity? When the rabbi was giving his sermon or his little homily in the synagogue, Did Jesus ever stop and say, whoa, that is a thought about God I had never considered before? No. Do you know why Jesus went to worship? As was his custom, every time the synagogue was open, there you would find Jesus. Do you know why? Because he thought his father was worthy of it. That's why. And in our day and time, we live in a a culture where people judge worship. They come into an environment like this with the attitude that says, what does it do for me? And I've done it. You've done it. And we, We judge everything. Are the prayers sacred enough? Is the music reverent enough? Is the preacher polished enough? You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of that show, The Voice. You all know what I'm talking about? Where the judges sit in those big red chairs, and they got their big buttons ready to push, and they're deciding every second whether or not they like it. That's what it kind of reminds me of. Let me tell you this, folks. Folks. In their heart of hearts, a worshiper, they they don't worship because of what it does for me. They worship out of what has God done for me. And I'm going to sing his praises because of that. Worship is all of me, every single part of me, acknowledging all of God. And by the way, just so you know, when we flip through Scripture and we get these little snapshots of what worship is like in heaven, like what Taylor read before this morning as our call to worship, worship in heaven is never anyone in isolation, It's never anybody in a corner doing it on their own. It's never anybody in a closet. It's the multitudes. It's the throngs. It's the masses. It's the corporate body of God coming together to extol their king. So, what we're doing, folks, is we are just practicing every week what we are ultimately headed for after this life. But it's not just that we're imitating Jesus when we worship. It's not like we're just these kind of puppets or that we're just doing whatever we see Jesus doing kind of mindlessly. It's not that. We're not just imitating him when we worship. You know what we're doing when we worship? We are anticipating Jesus to show up. Scripture says that God dwells in the praises of his people. It's like an invitation that we send out to our creator saying, come and be among us. Because unlike the gods of other faith systems, folks, mind you, the God we serve, the God of the Bible, he wants to be in the presence of his children. This is why James tells the church that he says, draw near to God, and he will what? Draw near to you. You reach out to God, and James says, of a surety, God will respond, and he will come be among you. So through praise, we invite God to make his home with us. It reminds me of that story that we read in the book of 1 Chronicles, where King Solomon has just finished building the temple of God after several years and unspeakable number of hours of labor that it took to build this thing, an unprecedented amount of money that it took to pull this off because everything's inlaid with gold and it's beautiful and it's got sculptures and it's just this, it's a structure like the world had not seen to that point in time. The question is though, you've got a temple for God that you've built and you've got so much invested in it. Here's the key question though. How do you get God to move in? How do you do that? And Solomon knew how. You know what he did? He held a praise concert. He said, let's get the band. Let's choir. And so the harpists come, and they start strumming, and the pipers come, and they start piping, and the drummers are beating on their drums, and the choir starts belting out the song. And you can read this in the Bible. Great is our God. His love endures forever. And the scriptures tell us that God showed up in such a powerful, dynamic, glorious way that the priests were actually unable to do their duties because the presence of God was so thick. So what's the temple of God today? I because mean, scripture teaches that, you know, that does God really dwell in places built by human hands? No. He dwells in humans. That's what Paul tells us in First Corinthians that we individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But Paul doesn't finish there. Here's what he says in Ephesians chapter two about why this is so important. Let somebody says in Ephesians two twenty together. There's the key. Not alone, not by yourself. Together, we are his house. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. In other words, you take that out, it's not worship. It's just mumbling. It's just singing. It's whatever. But it's not worship if Jesus isn't the cornerstone. what somebody says, we are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the lord now you think about this and the power behind this and then it makes you start to understand no wonder the enemy is reaching as far as he can across our globe to outlaw and to ban corporate worship in any country and community that he possibly can No wonder he's trying to make it illegal across our world for people to gather in the name of Jesus like us because he knows that there is so much power that's there when the children of God get together to meet with their father. And so he's made it his point to end it as much as he can. You know what worship also does? It restores us. There was a story that came out of Ontario, Canada not too long ago about a young lady named Hannah Peterson. Hannah was in a horrible car accident where she broke her pelvis, broke some ribs, punctured a lung, and got a concussion. And what makes this really interesting is not the fact that she had such an accident, but the fact that she had her wedding that was planned for just a few weeks after the accident. But Hannah was bound and determined not to change the date. She was going to do whatever she had to to show up that day to make sure she could say her vows. So the wedding day comes, and while most brides walk down the aisle arm in arm with their father, that wasn't necessarily how it went for Hannah. She was with her dad, but it looked like this. Is Ming up there? There we go. <laughs> That's what it looked like for Hannah. Her dad was pushing her down the aisle to meet her groom up front. But before he, she could even make it half the way, her bridegroom, Stuart, comes up to his bride, and look what he does. He scoops her up, in his arms and he carries her the rest of the way to the front and Hannah was bound to determine to stand up while she was saying her vows and so Stuart had to steady her to make sure she didn't fall and after the vows were said Stuart picked up his bride and carried her off as they began their life together you know what that is Do you know who that bride represents there? Us. Scripture says that you and I are the bride of Christ. You ever come through the doors of this place just feeling beat down? You ever come into this place just filled with, with so much pain, so much woundedness from life, so much hurt, And yet, through the experience of worship, you feel lifted up. You feel like someone is carrying you. I got news for you. That someone is Jesus. Show us that last picture again, Ming. That's Jesus showing up to his hurting bride. That we experience when we lift his name up, no matter the pain, the hurt, the sorrow, the crisis, the trial, the tragedy, Lord Jesus comes and he helps his bride and he picks her up and he carries her. Because I don't know if you've noticed or not, but life can be pretty hard. You and I, as followers of Christ, we are called to swim upstream in a downstream world. We're called to be light in a world that is very, very dark, and sometimes it gets exhausting. So we need our batteries recharged. This is why Paul and Silas, when they were trying to be light for Jesus, they were beaten and they were persecuted and they were thrown into jail. And about midnight, when all the other prisoners are sleeping, and when normal people do sleep, even though they're in pain, even though they're exhausted, even though they're weary, do you know what they do at midnight? They lift up the name of God and worship. When King David... When he's fearful, or when he's worn out, or when he's beat down, do you know what he does? Time and time again, he says, hey, somebody give me something to write on, because I've got to compose some worship. And here's what we read in Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and he turned to me, and he heard my cry. Listen to this. He lifted me out of the pit of despair. He showed up. He carried me. Out of the mud and the mire, he set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. He has given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. One of the silliest things that you or I could ever say, and I've said it, well, I just don't think I'm going to go to church today because I just don't feel like it. Friends, that's exactly when we need to go. Because it's through our time of worship. And again, everything that we do in here on Sunday is a form of worship. It's through that lifting up God that my hurt and my pain and my worry and my struggles and my addictions and my heartache and all the troubles of my life, it's through that that they lose their power to discourage me when I'm extolling him. So you do what you ought to do even when you don't feel like it and you just trust God. And you know who taught us this the best? Jesus. At that point in his life, when Jesus was about to enter in the most pain, the most hurt that he knew was coming for him, betrayal, arrest, conviction, crucifixion, death, grave. Jesus knew what lay ahead of him in the next 24 hours. So how did he respond to that? Listen to what it says, Matthew 26, 30. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Isn't that powerful? Facing so much hurt and grief that was coming toward him head on. The last thing Jesus wanted to do was spend time with his close band of brothers singing to their father. Folks, we are restored through worship. you know what else worship does? I'm only going to stay here for about one minute. Worship reminds me And I don't know about you, but I needed reminded a lot of the story that I'm living, of that ultimate reality that's true. Because here's what I know. We live in a nation where we are just inundated with so many voices trying to tell us who we are or what we're supposed to be about. Hollywood's telling us what we're supposed to be about. Washington's telling us who we are. Science says, you know, you really don't even need to ask that question because you're just a cosmic accident. You have no plan or purpose. You're just an accident of the cosmos. But listen, a true follower of Jesus, a true disciple of Jesus lives, lives daily With this constant decision to always live and always walk in that one story where Jesus is always the hero. And it's a good story. It's a story about a good God who even when we turned our back on him, he didn't turn his back on us about a God who became flesh for us and he took our place on the cross and he conquered the grave and he gained victory over death and he rose gloriously and he ascended into heaven and scripture says that all history and all time is working itself up to one culminating point where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord so you gotta choose your story you gotta choose the narrative every day that makes you get out of bed and dictates the path your feet are going to take and for me and I hope you even though there's all these seductive stories and voices trying to get us in our world mine's gonna be the story where Jesus is always the hero So for some of you, as we're talking about these steps and taking your next step in Christ, maybe for some of you today, your next step just looks like this. I'm going to be committed to being in corporate worship more than I have been. I'm not going to be the 1.7 person. I'm going to make worship a priority because Jesus, who I call Lord Jesus, who I want to look like, he made it a priority. And it becomes this launching pad through greater things that Jesus wants to do in our lives. And I said that worship reminds us, listen to me, folks. When we sing songs, they remind us of our story. They remind us of God's story that he's working out and how our story and God's story come together. They remind us of the hope that we have, of the life that we're supposed to be living, of the seductiveness of sin, of the hope of salvation. So here's what I want to do. As we close out together, as we get ready to enter into a time of communion, I'm not going to give a little homily or say anything. Here's what we're going to do. We're just going to worship. We're going to worship a song called In Christ Alone. And what this song, one of the reasons why I love this song so much is because it reminds me of who I am and where I stand and about the supremacy of Jesus over everyone and everything. And I need reminded of that. And I know you do too. So it's going to be on the video screens. And I want us to sing it like we believe it. If you don't believe it, keep your mouth shut. Seriously. But if you really believe this, you sing it like you do.